New York, this is Democracy Now! In an unprecedented move, the FBI has executed a search warrant on former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. The raid is reportedly tied to a federal probe into Trump's unlawful removal of documents from the White House. We'll get the latest. Then we look at the Senate's sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. The Senate has now passed the most significant bill to fight the climate crisis ever. And it's going to make a difference to my grandkids. The world will be a better place for my grandchildren because of what we did today. And that makes me feel very, very good. We'll speak to Rob Weissman of Public Citizen, Indigenous land defender Tara Hauska, and Bishop William Barber. We'll also speak to the bishop about why he wants to go to Russia to help free basketball superstar Brittany Griner. And we'll look at the trial of far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who's been ordered to pay $49 million to the parents of a Sandy Hook massacre victim. We'll speak with Elizabeth Williamson, author of the book Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The FBI seized documents from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort and home in Florida. On Monday evening, Trump issued a statement saying, quote, My beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago, in Palm Beach, Florida, is currently under siege, raided and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. They even broke into my safe, he said. Trump was in New York at the time. Multiple news outlets are reporting the FBI executed a search warrant as part of a probe into whether Trump removed 15 boxes of White House records, including some classified documents, after he left office. Such a move might constitute a criminal violation of the Presidential Records Act. In response, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy threatened to investigate Attorney General Merrick Garland if Republicans win back control of the House after the midterm elections. This all comes as Donald Trump is facing multiple other investigations over his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. After headlines, we'll get the latest with Rob Weissman, president of Public Citizen. The head of Ukraine's state-run nuclear power company is calling on Russia and Ukraine to adopt a five-kilometer-wide demilitarized zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant after fighting over the weekend damaged safety equipment at the Russian-occupied site. Petro Kotin said Monday Russia's military had turned Zaporizhia into a base used to attack Ukrainian positions and was threatening a disaster that could spread radiation across the globe. The situation is very dangerous. We encountered such situation at Chernobyl nuclear power plant, if you remember. But there is a very big difference here. There are six power units. All of them are filled with nuclear materials. Also, there are pools with spent nuclear fuel. All of this requires constant cooling at the expense of working pumps. These pumps run on electricity. Ukrainian officials have accused Russia of placing explosive landmines around the power units at Zaporizhia in what President Volodymyr Zelensky called nuclear blackmail. Elsewhere, 
Ukraine's military says its forces are advancing on the strategic city of Izium in northeastern Ukraine as part of a counteroffensive aimed at retaking areas under Russian occupation. Meanwhile, the Biden administration said Monday it's sending another billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine, including advanced anti-radar missiles produced by Raytheon. It's the 18th time the U.S. has sent a package of weapons since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The Pentagon said Monday as many as 80,000 Russian troops have been killed or injured in the fighting, though that number was impossible to verify. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports Israeli soldiers killed three Palestinian men earlier today as they raided a house in the city of Nablus in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The ministry says at least 40 other Palestinians were wounded in the raid. Four of them are in serious condition. Israel says none of its troops were injured in the assault, which killed a senior commander with the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. The latest violence came as a ceasefire held in the Gaza Strip after three days of Israeli bombardment killed at least 44 Palestinians, including 15 children. 350 others were injured. The Palestinian Authority says some 1,500 housing units were damaged or destroyed by Israel's weekend assault. This is Mohammed Shamlach, whose family's home in Gaza City was demolished. A ceasefire or not, how will this help us after the fighting, when our house was shelled and demolished? Who will put it back in its previous state? The leaders have shaken hands. That is fine. But what about the people who lost their homes and who are stranded now? We have relatives who lost their house previously, and now it has happened again. Here in New York, hundreds of people gathered outside the Midtown Manhattan offices of the group Friends of the Israel Defense Forces Monday for an emergency rally in response to Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza. This is Abdullah Akhl of the group Within Our Lifetime, which organized the protest. This protest is happening all across the country, especially as Gaza is being bombed today and in the last few days. Ceasefire doesn't really mean a ceasefire, because as we know, ceasefires are broken time and time again, especially by apartheid forces. And so we're here saying that ceasefires don't work. We're here fighting for absolute liberation of Palestine. European Union negotiators have put forward a final draft text of a document that would restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. President Trump unilaterally pulled the United States from the landmark agreement in 2018, prompting Iran to expand its nuclear activities. On Monday, U.S. and Iranian negotiators wrapped up talks in Vienna, Austria, with a proposal that would see Iran halt the enrichment of some nuclear materials in exchange for relief from sanctions. Negotiations have remained stalled for months, in part due to President Biden's decision to keep Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on a terrorist blacklist. In immigration news, the Biden administration said Monday it's officially ending the contested Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy and will no longer force asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are resolved in U.S. courts. The announcement came just hours after a judge lifted an injunction in effect since December, blocking Biden officials from terminating the program, formerly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. The Supreme Court ruled in June the Biden administration had the authority to end the policy. Thousands of asylum seekers enrolled in the program have faced kidnapping, torture, rape and other dangerous conditions while waiting in Mexico. 
A federal court in Brunswick, Georgia, has sentenced the white father and son Gregory and Travis McMichael to additional terms of life in prison on federal hate crimes charges for the 2020 murder of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man shot and killed while jogging through a mostly white neighborhood. An accomplice, William Bryan Jr., was sentenced to an additional 35 years. All three men are already serving life sentences in Georgia after they were convicted last November of Arbery's murder. On Monday, a judge rejected a bid by the McMichaels to serve their time in federal prison, which they argued would be safer than the state prison where they're being held. Ahmaud Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, spoke to reporters outside the courthouse after the sentences were handed down. Travis chose not to even say that he was sorry. So it really showed the court, it showed the family, it showed the, everybody who's been saying just for a mile, what kind of people really took my son away. In Maryland, the family of Anton Black has reached a $5 million deal to partially settle their wrongful death lawsuit. Anton Black was a 19-year-old African-American teenager who died in 2018 after he was pinned down by three white police officers shackled by the legs and electrocuted with a taser. A Johns Hopkins physician concluded Anton Black died of asphyxiation. His family sued, saying officers used excessive force and later tried to cover up the killing with false claims claims that Black was on drugs and showed superhuman strength. As part of the settlement, three coastal towns in Maryland have agreed to change their policies on police use of force and will adopt new methods of training officers, they say. In Cuba, at least one firefighter is dead and 14 people missing after a massive fire at an oil storage facility spread to a third storage tank. Officials say the blaze began late Friday after lightning struck part of the oil depot in the western province of Matanza. It's one of Cuba's worst environmental disasters in decades and threatens to bring rolling blackouts to the island, which relies heavily on imported foreign oil to generate electricity. And in the Philippines, police arrested former vice presidential candidate, scholar and activist Walden Bellow on cyber libel charges. He's since been released after he posted bail. Last year, ahead of the presidential election in the Philippines, a member of Vice President Sara Duterte's campaign, Jeffrey Tupas, filed a cyber libel complaint against Bello over statements he allegedly made about Tupas on social media. Sara Duterte is the daughter of former President Rodrigo Duterte, whose government has been accused of severe human rights violations and repression against critics and journalists. On Twitter, Walden Bello wrote, quote, These people are mistaken if they think they can silence me and suppress my exercise size of free speech, he said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, the FBI has seized documents from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida on Monday morning. Multiple news organizations are reporting the FBI executed the search warrant as part of a probe into whether Trump illegally removed 15 boxes of White House records, including some classified documents after he left office. The FBI and Justice Department has made no official comment about what happened Monday. The FBI is run by Christopher Wray, who was appointed by 
President Trump. The contents of the court-approved search warrant have also not been revealed. On Monday, Trump issued a statement saying, quote, My beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, is currently under siege, raided, and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. They even broke into my safe, he said. Trump was in New York at the time. The federal investigation into Trump's handling of the records has been escalating for months. CNN reports the FBI interviewed aides to Trump in April and May about the missing documents. Then in June, lawyers with the Justice Department traveled to Mar-a-Lago to see how the documents were being stored and to meet with two of Trump's lawyers. CNN reports Trump was at Mar-a-Lago during that visit and made small talk with the investigators. Days later, federal investigators sent a letter requesting the documents be stored in a more secure fashion. Aides to Trump reportedly then added a padlock to the door of the room. Supporters of Trump responded with outrage to the news of the FBI raid. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy threatened to investigate Attorney General Merrick Garland if Republicans win back control of the House in the fall. This all comes as Donald Trump is facing multiple other investigations over his attempt to overturn the 2020 elections. It also comes as Trump is considering another run for the White House. We begin today's show with Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen. Uh, Rob, can you explain exactly what took place? This is unprecedented, the FBI raiding the home of a former president. Hey, Amy and Juan, it's great to be with you. It is unprecedented, and we don't exactly know what's going on. And I think we should be cautious about being too excited about this development. Um, they have they raided Mar-a-Lago, not his other properties. Um, apparently, according to news reports, as you as you said, in search of classified documents that he improperly took with him when he left the White House and has been storing in Mar-a-Lago. It's not exactly clear why that which, while illegal, is sufficient that the FBI, with the authorization of the Justice Department, would have taken this step. So maybe the documents really are important. Maybe they show something that he's trying to hide. Maybe they actually compromise national security. But I don't think that we should jump on board of being too excited and trusting of the FBI. And we should be mindful of the problem of massive overclassification and uh, excessive claims to national security when it comes to government documents. So in this score, I think we just have to wait and see. On the bigger picture and the far more important issue of the January 6th investigations, there we know what happened. The committee has laid it out in incredible detail. We know what we saw with our own eyes. The president orchestrated a coup against the United States of America. And for that, I believe absolutely he should be prosecuted. And Bob Weissman, could you remind uh, our viewers and listeners about uh, the issue that the National Archives raised about President Trump taking a whole bunch of uh, official presidential records out of the White House when he left and that some of these were supposedly uh, uh, classified as well? Right. He, he just took a lot of stuff with him. You know, when you're president, the materials you generate, those aren't yours. Those belong to the American people. And there's a whole process both for national security materials and, and in general, to have those stored at the National Archives and be part of the historical record and also obviously kept classified uh, for when they're secret materials. We know that Trump, you know, by nature and, and specifically, didn't care about proper document retention uh, policies. We have new, you know, ongoing and new reports that he ripped up documents and flushed them down the toilet. 
obviously, given his personality, he's not a guy who's going to take this stuff seriously. So he took uh, at least 15 boxes of documents with him. There's been a struggle to get those documents back to the National Archives where they belong. It may well be that this raid is just about that. Or it may be that there's something that's really specific in these documents that poses a bigger risk than just the fact that he improperly took documents he shouldn't have taken. And Robert Weissman, to get to the the uh, the biggest news this week, which was the, the the Senate's passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you've called this a very good legislative package. When enacted, it will make America a better place. Could you lay out some of the key uh, the key provisions of this act? Uh, I, I was a little skeptical about the issue of Medicare negotiating drug prices because it only involves right now, as I understand it, 10 drugs of the thousands uh, that are out there. And even those, the negotiations, uh, the actual prices won't increase until uh, uh, won't be capped until uh, 2026, as I understand yeah, that's right. I think for the for the overall package, um, I think it is a very positive bill. And I think if the key elements are in there, which are to lower or lower and cap drug prices for for seniors, expand insurance, health insurance subsidies for people, raise taxes on corporations and take important measures to deal with the climate crisis. Um, they're significant and they wouldn't have happened absent movements across the country and the Bernie Sanders campaign, which forced them on the agenda and forced them through the Congress. That said, there absolutely there are limitations to all the good things that are in there. There are flaws with each element that's in there. Um, and in this case of the, the climate and energy portion of the bill, there's some affirmatively bad things in there. So in the case of drug pricing, for example, you're absolutely right. When it comes to Medicare negotiation, uh, as you know, Medicare is forbidden by law. Uh, from ne- negotiating the price of the drugs that it pays for for seniors that was put in there by a representative named Billy Towson in 2005, shortly before he left the Congress and went over to be head of the Pharmaceutical Trade Association, Pharma. It's one of the most corrupt moments in American history. It's cost Americans hundreds of billions of dollars um, since 2005 and even more going forward. So the proper solution would be for their Medicare to have full authority to negotiate all the drugs it buys, the price of all the drugs it buys. And if companies don't agree to reasonable prices to let Medicare uh, authorize generic competition to come to the market and buy it from generics at a lower price. This bill falls way short of that. Um, as you said, it just lets Medicare negotiate in terms of Medicare negotiation. It just lets Medicare negotiate the prices of a handful of drugs and it's going to have to wait a little while to do that. But even that will save American people about $100 billion over 10 years um, and has got pharma, the industry, up in arms because they don't lose in Congress ever. And they are super worried that this is a break in the dam and that it will lead to more negotiation once we, the American people see plainly the cost savings that are available. So it is very limited, but also very important. 
Well, we're going to continue to look at the uh, Senate bill, the sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations with Rob Weissman of Public Citizen. We'll also be joined by Indigenous land defender Tara Hauska and then Bishop William Barber. Stay with us. When you think of MVP, Mountain Valley Pipelines, by members of Appalachians Against Pipelines, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we continue with the vote on the Senate bill. The House is preparing to vote Friday on that sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. The Senate passed the measure Sunday when Vice President Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote after every Republican in the Senate voted no. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer described the legislation as the boldest climate package in U.S. history. The Senate has now passed the most significant bill to fight the climate crisis ever. And it's going to make a difference to my grandkids. The world will be a better place for my grandchildren because of what we did today. And that makes me feel very, very good. Many climate groups praised the Senate for taking action, but said far bolder steps are needed to address the climate emergency. Varshini Prakash, the founder of the Sunrise Movement, tweeted, This isn't the bill my generation deserves, but it's the one we can get. It must pass to give us a fighting chance at a livable world. She went on to write, Youth leaders to Congress, pass this bill, then get back to work. The Senate bill aims to cut U.S. carbon emissions by 40 percent by the end of the decade, but it also includes Controversial provisions added to win support from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Cinema. At Manchin's request, the bill will make it easier for the pipeline industry to win approval of new projects, including the proposed Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. The bill could also lead to more drilling on public lands and waters and expand tax credit for fossil coal and gas burning plants. The Center for Biological Diversity has described the bill as a climate suicide pact. 
Act. Still with us, Rob Weissman, president of Public Citizen. We're also joined by Tara Hauska, indigenous lawyer and land defender, founder of the Ginu Collective. She is Ojibwe from Kauchiching First Nation. Uh, Tara Hauska, can you respond to the spill that many of the more mainstream environmental groups are declaring a great victory? Um, you have the Sunrise Movement saying it's not what um, they would have done, but it's a beginning. Your response? You've got a bill that, in order to get access to renewable energy dollars and investments, up front, the fossil fuel industry has handed off uh, millions and millions of acres of public lands, of waters, uh, side, side project deals where you see the rolling back of bedrock environmental law, all of this just to get investment into renewable energy. I mean, that is not a climate solution. Mother Nature is not dealing U.S. dollars. That's my response. And I wanted to ask you, Tara, the uh, the two main crafters of this bill, uh, uh, Senators Manchin and uh, Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, both of them have received significant contributions uh, from, um, according to the New York Times, from Next Era Energy, a, u- a utility giant that's a stakeholder in the Mountain Valley pipeline. Schumer alone has received more than $281,000 from Next Era just this election cycle. Uh, what does this tell us about the, the continuing role of the fossil fuel industry in crafting federal legislation? It, to me, says you got a project that has not passed environmental review. It's a project that funders and, and investors are very uh, concerned about. It's a project that's bad all the way around and just cannot get get momentum and get it going. And here you see con- Congress just deciding, oh, you know what, we're going to give it a pass, and specifically this project. So setting this precedent of well, even if your project doesn't meet environmental reviews, even if it's not fiscally responsible, even if it's not going to meet any standard of economic development, you still might get it through. That's so, what this precedent is setting. Let me play um, what uh, West Virginia Senator Manchin had to say about this. It has nothing to do with me, and it has everything to do not only with West Virginia, but our country and the security and energy that we need. And that's the bottom line. There's not another project in America today that will bring this much energy within four to five months, within a half year. There's nothing that we can go to that will bring two billion cubic feet back into the marketplace. Uh, The New York Times reports contributions to Manchin from natural gas pipeline companies dramatically increased, quote, from the $20,000 in 2020 to more than $331,000 so far this election cycle, Tara. I mean, it's doubling down on fossil fuels to get to renewables. And even the renewables, we have to acknowledge the fact that renewables themselves, it's still going to be extraction. It's still going to be the model that the fossil fuel and extractive industry wants, which is new mines in new places, which means our people, indigenous people, which means black and brown people continue to disparately experience the effects of extractive industry. It means that mining companies are showing up in our backyard, taking out lithium, which is already happening in Thacker's Pass. It's already happening in other places. I mean, it's <laughs> to get to the place that these folks are saying is a solution requires a lot of damage, according to them. That's their that's their climate crisis decision making process. And it is sorely lacking. 
Uh, Rob Weissman, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. If you could talk, uh, respond to some of the negative aspects in terms of climate on this bill, but also talk about the positive aspects. Uh, clearly, there are all kinds of of uh, subsidies and enticements uh, for renewable energy. But uh, there's also questions as to whether the industry already, especially the automobile industry, is not profiting from these uh, from these uh, rebates for electric cars by hiking the prices of cars. Yeah, there's a lot in it. Look, I mean, there's a lot that's bad in it on the climate side and the energy side. Everything Tara said, absolutely right. I wouldn't disagree with a word that she said. Uh, there are a lot of good things in it. And, you know, the top line is it will reduce uh, overall emissions um, you know, from this 2005 baseline from about 30% to 40%. That's not nearly enough, um, but it's consequential. And it's consequential as, a, as opposed to the choice of, of doing nothing, which was unfortunately our alternative. Um, there, there are a lot of good programs in here. There's a lot of environmental justice specific investments, uh, billions of dollars for that, including, for example, money to decarbonize ports to reduce the diesel pollution that uh, so badly affects communities around ports. Um, there's a lot of resilience money targeted for uh, low-income coastal communities. Uh, and, there, and there's big money to try to facilitate a, a rapid transition to, to renewables. So there's, there's just a ton in there, and a lot of it's really good. Um, but it's absolutely right that the, the overall deal, uh, because of Senator Manchin, and on this part, to a lesser extent, Senator Sinema, uh, includes outrageous things that are completely counterproductive to the objective of reducing the climate crisis and absolutely will worsen both the problem of emissions and um, really focused harm on communities that have to deal with with oil and gas extraction with pipelines um, and 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 as Sarah was saying and mining and those overwhelmingly or they're almost definitionally poor communities uh, communities of color and and often uh, Native American communities for sure let me ask you, Rob, about what Senator Cinema extracted in order to get her support. Um, Democrats agreeing to drop a proposal to raise taxes on private equity and hedge fund firms. Um, you know, both of these senators, they feared, could torpedo this deal. But what about Senator Sanders uh, torpedoing it from another direction, or threatening to, unless he, too, got concessions around the issues—well, everything from what Tara is raising to um, uh, to this issue of what Senator Sinema was demanding? If you could respond—I wanted to get Senator Bernie Sanders in here, his voice speaking on the Senate floor this weekend. Mr. President, under this legislation— the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next 10 years, on top of the $15 billion in tax breaks and corporate welfare that they already receive every year. And interestingly enough, Mr. President, that may well be the reason why BP, one of the largest oil companies in the world, supports this bill. It may be the reason why Shell, another huge oil company, supports this bill. And it is the reason, I suspect, why the CEO of ExxonMobil is pleased by many of the provisions included in this deal. So we've got to think a little bit about what it means when major oil companies who are in the process of destroying the planet 
support this legislation. So if you could respond to what Sanders said, the difference between Sanders and Cinnamon Manchin is he doesn't hold the bill hostage and unless he gets what he wants, um, uh, support it. And if you could respond to that, uh, for everything from the fossil fuel companies he's talking about to what Cinema got. Cinema has received more than half a million dollars in campaign donations from private equity group executives in this election cycle alone representing about 10 percent of our fundraising from individual donors. Uh, this includes, I'm reading from the Financial Times, um, donations totaling $54,900 from executives at KKR, $35,000 from Carlisle, more than $27,000 from Apollo, more than $24,000 from Co Holdings Capital, and more than $23,000 from Riverside Partners. Yeah, well, for the first part of the question, Bernie doesn't have the leverage that Manchin and Cinema do, because they won't go along with what he might have demanded. Any additional thing, they would have said, fine, no bill. We know that for certain because we thought there was going to be no bill just a few days before there was a bill. So I don't hold—I uh, have no criticism for Bernie. I think he did everything he did. And I think if we step back, the reason this bill exists at all is because of the Sanders campaign for president and how he framed things at the get-go, at the start of the Biden administration. So I think that the, the existence of all the positive things, the, single, the person who has the most single credit for that is Bernie Sanders. I think those positive things are the reflection of, of grassroots movements across the country. And that's why we got them. He did not have the leverage to get more than is in the bill. On the part about uh, Senator Sinema, you're absolutely right. You're referring to a special loophole in, the, in the, the tax system that makes it possible for some of the richest Wall Street actors, the people who run private equity firms and hedge funds, to pay a lower tax rate. It's slightly complicated why, but that, that's just what, it, that's what the loophole does. It's called the carried interest rate. The industry itself knows there's no conceivable policy justification for it, but they prefer paying less in taxes, so they do everything they can to keep it going. And it's not just it's, this is not for the companies. This is for the, the rich people at the top. Uh, they got uh, Senator Sinema to carry water for them. And her price of agreeing to the bill was to take out a provision that would have partially closed this loophole. It was only partial. So giving it up is actually not as bad as it might seem. In exchange, it turns out Schumer was able to extract something that was um, also important, very progressive and raises more money, which is a one percent tax on share buybacks. So at the end of the day, Cinema took care of her donors, a complete outrage, but that netted out for the American people as something that's more progressive in terms of the tax system and I guess a net positive. But no excuse for what Senator Cinema did. It's Senator Manchin yeah, uh, at least uh, told uh, Rob, about Rob, why. She can't say Rob, that about if we can, I'd like to bring in Tara Hauska uh, as well. Uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act provides over $60 billion in funding for environmental justice priorities, something Rob Weissman mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, Tara, was anyone in the in environmental justice movement that you know involved in, uh, in helping to craft this provision? Uh, no, there's been uh, some pretty serious pushback re regarding the lack of representation in the drafting of this bill, specifically on the pieces that affect our communities directly. Um, you know, it, from my perspective, it doesn't really work throwing to throw money at us if we don't have habitable places to live. So if our communities are underwater, 
or if our air is poisoned and we've got pipelines and mines and all the things that are destroying our lands actively, how is some investments in block grants supposed to help us? You know, those are really serious questions that this bill is lacking. And to that one piece that was just said, too, about like where we're at in terms of blocking the bill, you know, there is this side deal that Manchin has mentioned and that they promised him, right? Like this is a handshake agreement about the permitting provisions, the rolling back of NEPA, the stream, quote unquote, streamlining of bedrock environmental processes and designation of 25 different projects um, to avoid these reviews. That's going back to the House and they're going to try to attach it to appropriations. So there still is something that can be done at the congressional level. I want to bring into this conversation Bishop Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and president of Repairers of the Breach. Um, you tweeted on Monday about the reconciliation package. While many politicians are applauding this compromise and it does some good things, it falls short of its promise and very short of addressing America's most pressing economic problems. If you can elaborate on that, and also the Mountain Valley Pipeline that um, Senator Manchin got revived uh, and funded in this bill, uh, goes from West Virginia through North Carolina, where you are. Thank you so much, Amy. And yeah, one of the concerns I have, and many of us have, is how we keep applauding so much compromise. You know, compromise historically has been very problematic once you read the details. You know, there was compromise that made people three-fifths of a person, gave us an electoral college. There was compromise on the 1964 Civil Rights Bill that, that, that actually John Lewis and many others criticized and uh, he said it wasn't doing what it actually said it was going to do that it necessitated the 65 Voting Rights Act. And I could go through history. So history has taught us that when politicians get in there and compromise, we, we must really look at what was put in, what was put out. It is very possible to celebrate the good things in this bill, the historic investment in uh, climate issues and the Green Bank and economic uh, uh, environmental justice. But you have to at least say, wait a minute, part of the deal was putting a pipeline that black and white and brown and especially poor people in frontline communities are fighting right now uh, from West Virginia uh, through, through Virginia and North Carolina. We've already beat two of those from coming in communities, one in Tennessee and one in North Carolina. And what do those pipelines do? How dangerous are they? Uh, uh, who is it really going to help? Is it going to benefit everyday people and working class people and poor people? Or is it going to benefit corporate interests? We also, Amy, have to say, wait a minute, uh, while we can celebrate some things, uh, we have to honestly say what's not a part of this bill so that we don't act as though this is an end, this is like a dunk if, we, if we're in basketball, game over. No, we have to wrestle with what is wrong with our politics when in order to get something good, you've got to give up universal pre-K. You've got to cut child care. You have to cut elder care. You have to cut child tax credit from the bill and money for public housing, affordable housing from the bill. You have to cut the expansion of earned income tax credit from the bill. You have to cut closing the Medicaid gap from the bill. You have to uh, cut the millionaire surtax from the bill. And then we saw all of this work, they 20 hours one day, 20 hours another day, but we only get one vote on restoring the Voting Rights Act, um, one vote on, on, on the John Lewis uh, bill, 
um, which Manchin actually said while John Lewis was living, that he would sign off on, that he agreed on, that he told people when he was running that uh, he supported. We, we, haven't, we haven't had, uh, we haven't gotten a living wage. Manchin said he was for living wage when he ran. So did cinema. All of these things had to be pushed away and pushed down in order to get this. So we have to honestly say what is historic, but we also have to say what is problematic. That is our constitutional right. That is our moral right. And because uh, 90% of the things that were cut out will hurt poor people, low-wage people, and, and, uh, and, and low-wealth people who represent 140 million people in this country, 30% of the electorate in some, in, in, uh, overall, and 45% in some battleground states. We have to address this, and it is a, real, it is a problem that has always been in the midst of American politics. You know, Dr. King got um, talked about a lot when he said that moderates were the worst enemy of the civil rights movement because they were more interested in compromise and order than they were in reordering the society. And we still have to have that critique today. Some don't like it, I mean, when you say it. But, you know, <clears throat> Amy, I come out of a sports background. And when I played football and when I watched basketball, if you win a championship seven-game series, you didn't sell, you didn't win one game and then say series over. You you did not really jump and applaud until you won all four games. Democrats should say, look, this is what we were able to do with 50 votes in the Senate and two renegade uh, senators. Give us uh, 54 votes or 55 votes. And we will get the rest of it done. But you can't just celebrate what was done and leave no conversation about all of these other things that matter so much in the life of uh, poor and low wealth people in this country. Because to do so is morally inconsistent, constitutionally uh, 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 inconsistent and economically insane. Well, Bishop, you raise sports, and I want to stick with that, although this goes way beyond sports. I want to ask you about calls to bring Brittany Griner home after a Russian court found the WNBA basketball star guilty of drug smuggling, sentencing her to nine years in a penal colony. During closing arguments last week, Griner took responsibility for bringing vape cartridges containing a small amount of cannabis oil with her through the Moscow airport, where she was arrested by customs authorities in February. She said the cannabis was prescribed for medical reasons. I understand everything that's being said against me, the charges that are against me, and that is why I pled guilty. But I had no intent to break any Russian laws. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling, that it doesn't end my life here. That's Brittany Griner, her voice speaking from behind bars in a cage in the Russian courtroom. President Biden called her nine-year prison sentence unacceptable, promised to work to bring her home. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has said the Kremlin's ready to discuss a prisoner swap. Uh, Bishop Barber, you've called for the creation of a diverse, interfaith, humanitarian delegation to travel to Russia to bring home Brittany Griner. Um, can you lay out how this would work? You've said you want to be a part of that delegation. Again, thank you so much. And if I might step back just two seconds and also say 
that on this other piece with the bill, you're right, it's not a game, which is why the poor people's campaign repairs the breach in Kairos. We're working to mobilize more than five million voters who are going to say our votes are not just supports but demands uh, for the kind of public policy that lifts all people. You know, what we're concentrating on uh, with Brittany Griner's situation is her full release. You know, we're talking about oil, and we're talking about traces of oil, and something that she used for medicinal purposes. And the only reason she's being targeted is because she's a high-profile uh, basketball player that's now caught up in geopolitics and Russia's um, using her in some, as some kind of pawn. You know, I would hope I have daughters, or, and if my daughter was in a situation that people, clergy, wouldn't have to know us, but they would be willing to offer their moral uh, strength. Uh, some weeks ago, before in front of the embassy, I was standing there with a Lutheran pastor, Unitarian, and a few other people. There was a prayer vigil, and we said that in front of the embassy. There have been others that have called for it. I think as many of us as possible should do it. We sent to the um, White House more than 800 clergy and religious leaders that signed off on a letter saying that if the embassy in Russia and the United States, the government, two governments would have to allow it. We can't do it on our own. If they would allow it and come together, we would be willing to put together a diverse. It shouldn't be any one or two people. This should be diverse. It should be black, white, brown, native. It should be Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, whoever. It should be diverse. And, and they should have international reach. Uh, where we could call on clergy, not only here, but even in Russia, even in other parts of the world, to say to Brit that we want to bring this young lady home. That's all we're concerned about. Put down the swords, put down the schemes, stop using her as a pawn. Did you know this is ridiculous to, to, to put her in jail for nine years for something that was medicinal and it was oil, no intent. You know, sadly, she had to plead guilty, but there may be some reason for that. Now, we also say, and we don't know all that's going on behind the scenes, and we have to say that we don't know what negotiations are. Uh, we hope that certainly that the prisoner swap, you know, moves and works. And, and what I love about Bernie, she wrote her letter, she just by herself, she lifted up another person and said, I'm concerned about that said something about her character. But of us and any person, and if I call on this and people who eat, we should be lifting up our pride, offering to go off to stand what the powers may be. Do it here with meeting at the embassy, uh, a Russian embassy. We'll do it there. But our priority should be this young lady coming home. Mrs. Her, well, uh, her family. Uh, Reverend Barber, I, I I would agree with you on the issue of trying to free uh, Brittany Griner, but why do you why do you need the embassy's approval? Uh, Congressman Richardson back in the '90s went to Iraq to free Americans who were jailed there. He went as a personally as a congressman without U.S. government approval. He went to Korea. Reverend Jackson, I remember going on a trip to him to Cuba to free prisoners. He just got on a plane and went. Uh, is it possible for just a, a few clergy to go there directly without the embassy's approval? Yeah, I don't think that's actually accurate. He just went. I talked to Reverend Jackson. I know he's he's even uh, offered and talked about this. And our lawyers have told us that there has to be some dialogue in that. You can't just go up into Russia, go into other places. There has to be some allowance even to move into the country. Listen, whatever works, we, 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 are, we are saying to the White House, we're saying to the world, 
uh, many people are talking, uh, and, and even we're saying to Brittany's family, we may not love you, but if there's any way we can help diverse groups of people willing to do that. And our first call to raise the moral cry is to raise the moral cry to honor what she has. There's a lot of delegates behind the uh, attorneys that are looking at all of that. Uh, even when um, you said that Jack went off so he didn't just top them. There were some pieces behind the scene that went on. We're saying it's in that same spirit we're willing. And I would even say that Reverend Jackson is a tremendous friend of mine uh, who, um, you know, his mind is still strong and powerful. And, and I'm sure that he's involved. And if he's not, he sh- the White House should be talking to him because, again, he's done this. He knows what they're doing. If he can go physically, he certainly can be a tremendous ally. Uh, he has been with us. And the main thing here, my brother, is that clergy and religious leaders in moments like this should always step up and offer and be willing. And that's what we're saying in this moment. Bishop Dr. William Barber, I want to thank you for being with us, co-chair of Poor People's Campaign, president of Repairers of the Breach. Next up, we speak with The New York Times reporter Elizabeth Williamson, author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, about the trial of the far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, ordered to pay $49 million to the parents of a Sandy Hook massacre victim. Back in 30 seconds. Trying to figure out why Too much time to be patient All this time you be feeding us lies Ain't no truth in your statements Too much pain in this little By any means, Georgia Smith here on Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Two years of right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones' text messages have now been turned over to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The messages were first revealed in court last week in Austin, Texas, just before a jury ordered InfoWars host Alex Jones to pay $4.1 million in compensatory damages and $45.2 million dollars in punitive damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, a six-year-old boy killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. For years, Alex Jones spread conspiracy theories that the Newtown shooting was a government hoax, the victims' families paid actors, resulting in online harassment and death threats for Sandy Hook families. During the trial, Alex Jones admitted on the stand that the Sandy Hook massacre was real. But he continued to spread lies on his Infowars show. This is six-year-old victim Jesse Lewis's mother, Scarlett Lewis, confronting Alex Jones as she testified. My son existed. You're still on your show today trying to say that I'm uh, implying that I'm an actress, that I'm deep state. Truth, truth is so vital to our world. Truth is what we base our reality on. And we have to agree on that to have a civil society. Sandy Hook is a hard truth, hard truth. Nobody would want to ever believe that 26 kids could be murdered. 
For more, we're joined by New York Times reporter Elizabeth Williamson, who covered this latest Alex Jones trial, um, as well as many others, and is the author of the new book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Elizabeth. You were in the Austin, Texas courtroom, what, like uh, 10 feet from Alex Jones during jury instruction. As you wrote the book, you spent a good deal of time with the family members of those little children and other staff at, the, uh, at Sandy Hook who were murdered. Um, talk about what you thought was most significant about this trial and that particular moment um, when you have the mother confronting Alex Jones saying, I am not a crisis actress. Thanks, Amy. Um, that was a remarkable, extraordinary uh moment that you played. And I'm glad you played that specific one, because for 90 minutes, Scarlett Lewis addressed every response while she was on the witness stand directly to Alex Jones. It was so powerful. But that moment that you played was particularly so, because within that was really the reason why the families have brought this suit, that they feel like Sandy Hook. And I agree, and that's what I wrote in my book, that you know, this was a foundational moment in this decade-long um, descent into disinformation and false narratives that our society is undergoing. And the families are raising a red flag that, you know, this is not only impacting us, this is eroding the foundation of our democracy. And that's what Scarlett was saying in that clip. Uh, but, Elizabeth, even as the trial is, was going on, uh, Alex Jones was still on his show blasting the, uh, the attempts to uh, to basically as a witch hunt against him. Could, uh, what's the likelihood yeah. of him have, actually having to pay any of this uh, huge uh, uh, damages, given the fact that the, uh, Texas has a cap on on punitive damages? No, absolutely. Um, he will probably eventually, but it could be years, have to pay about $5 million rather than 49. And that's because state law in Texas caps punitive damages in most instances at $750,000 per plaintiff. So that means that Neil Heslin, Jesse's father, and Scarlett Lewis each would receive $750,000. Um, but let's not forget, there are two more trials for damages coming up, another one in Texas. And if passed as predictor, we could maybe expect a similar result. But there is another one coming in Connecticut where there aren't those types of caps on damages. And that case has been brought by the families of eight victims. Um, so that is really one to watch for. Will this bankrupt Alex Jones? He already claims he's bankrupt. That's a, a subject of intense dispute by the families and their lawyers. Um, who knows? And will he ever change? Probably not. You know, I would say 90 percent, 99 percent that he will never change. But it does send a message to would be Alex Jones's. And it also just sends that societal message that this is just so important to push back against the lies and disinformation that are flowing online that more and more Americans are grabbing onto and believing. And what can you tell us about what we learned in the trial about the impact on these families, on uh, Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin, the, the, uh, the parents of Jesse Lewis and others as well? So, 
Sure. Um, so mo- it, within hours after the shooting, Alex Jones started to spread the lie that this was a false flag operation, meaning um, a pretext but planned by the government uh, to confiscate Americans' firearms. Um, he likes to say that he was only echoing the claims of others or that he was only asking the questions that other people were asking. That's not true. He really did begin to talk about this within hours. Um, and he has a following of tens of millions of people. Um, so the, that circulated and, you know, it only takes a small percentage who are willing to confront the family. So what started to happen was initially this was online. People started seeking out the family members who Jones was implying and many others as well were complicit in this government plot. So they were calling them frauds. They were saying they did it for money. They were coming on to memorial pages that had been set up on Facebook and elsewhere on social media in in recognition and in honor of the victims. Um, And then they kind of crossed that virtual divide and they began confronting them on the street, looking in their windows, digging through their trash, following them around as, you know, at funerals and at memorial services and commemorative events. Um, And they've made their lives a living hell. They've threatened their lives. One family, the next Texas case will be Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, whose son Noah Posner is the youngest Sandy Hook victim. They have moved almost a dozen times because their personal information, including their home addresses, have been published online by these conspiracy theorists. So it is really a substantial and serious and horrific secondary trauma that's been inflicted on these families. So the claims on InfoWars that these children never died or never existed to begin with. And if you can uh, talk about what he said about that in court and then the money he made off of the lies, uh, the texts that— It's hard to believe, but his lawyer mistakenly handed over to the prosecutors that now ended up at the January 6th committee, um, talking about him making, what, $800,000 in a day? Yeah. Yeah. No, he has made—and, you know, one of the reasons, Amy, that he never stopped talking about this for years— only after the lawsuits were threatened and filed did he stop talking about Sandy Hook. And it was because it was a money spinner for him. His audience more than doubled from the time after the shooting until 2016. Um, he, that was the period of time in which he was talking about this the most. Um, he has revenues in excess of $50 million a year. His business model is ingenious in that he sells products that are targeted to the paranoias of his sort of conspiracy-minded audience. So it's diet supplements for people who are distrustful of traditional medicine, uh, unregistered gun components for people who don't want to register a firearm with the federal government, doomsday prepper gear for people who are preparing for the end of times or the full government takeover. So he was making a lot of money. And this was a, um, a claim that people really latched on to. There were a significant number. Well, um, you know, one thing aired in court was a year after Sandy Hook, um, there was a study done. We have 10 seconds. By Fairleigh Dickinson. Sure. Um, that said a quarter of Americans at that time believed that Sandy Hook was likely or definitely fake. 
Well, we are going to do part two and post online at democracynow.org and talk about the texts that were handed over and what they may say. We're speaking with Elizabeth Williamson, New York Times features reporter, author of the book Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. Learn more at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.